Well, I'm certainly glad that you're here this evening, and I trust you brought your Bibles with you. I want to encourage you to get them out and to use them as we study together for just a few moments tonight. Tomorrow night, as we mentioned, we'll be talking about strengthening the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. We take a look at Hebrews chapter 12 and some instruction there that uh, the Hebrew writer gives to the brethren that are facing some difficulty and discouragement. And so we'll look at that text tomorrow night. On Wednesday evening, we said we'll talk about parents and modesty. We talk particularly about the role that parents need to play in raising their children up, in the nurturing the admonition of the Lord and dealing with the issue of modesty. On Thursday evening, we're going to talk about how shall the young secure their hearts. And then on Friday night, we're going to talk about why have you not obeyed the gospel. And so if you have a friend that you want to invite to come and be with us, that's not a child of God, I hope that all the lessons will be beneficial, but particularly the last two would be very beneficial for those that have not yet obeyed the gospel. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes we are guilty of compartmentalizing our lives. What I mean by that is when we look at our life, we have our family life and our relationship to our family, and then we have our work and our job, and we have what we like to do in leisure and recreation, and then we also have a, a sort of part of that life that is marked out for our service to God and being a Christian. And sometimes we view those areas of life as sort of being separate from one another. A better way, however, to view our lives would not be to view it as sort of compartmentalized and that God has a portion of our lives that's marked out for Him, but rather our being a Christian affects everything that we are, whether it's our marriage, being a parent, our work and our job, our leisure and our recreation. In every one of those areas, we are seeking to serve the Lord and live the life that God demands of us as children of God. And while that's the way we should view life, that being a Christian affects every area of our life and every decision that we make, there are often those who really don't think about the Lord any more than the time in which we gather together on Sunday and on Wednesday evening. Several years ago, I was meeting with the elders at Northside, and we were sitting down and they were saying, here's some things we want you to talk about. We want you to preach a lesson on dealing with this error or a lesson on this area of worldliness. One of the elders says, I've got a topic I've been wanting you to preach on for a while. I want you to preach on the subject of a four-hour Christian. And my initial response is, you're going to have to give me more information than that. What is it you're looking for? And he said, I'm talking about those who really do not allow Christianity to influence them except in the time that we gather together. So I want to think with you a few moments this evening about this idea of a four-hour Christian. First of all, exactly what do we mean by a four-hour Christian? What are some of the identifying marks of one who is a four-hour Christian? Is it really possible to be one that is simply a four-hour child of God? First of all, what do we mean by a four-hour Christian? Let me say, first of all, as we begin to define a four-hour Christian, we're talking about a Christian that attends every service every time the doors are open. It is certainly true that there are some that are only there for an hour or two hours every week, and they certainly uh, we realize that they're not thinking spiritually in the decisions that they make. 
But there are some that are four-hour Christian in the sense they're going to be there every time the doors are open. They take very seriously the command to attend that is given in Hebrews 10 and verse 25, where the apostle uh, Paul said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the individual we're talking about tonight is one that is present when the doors are open. Not only are they present every time the doors are open, they seek to put oftentimes a form or outward facade of godliness. They have a form of godliness. They may talk about godliness as they assemble together and as we make comments in Bible class. They certainly would talk about how much that they love the Lord. And yet, upon closer examination, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5, describe those that have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. That word form there means the appearance or the mere form, but there's not really a reality behind it. Reminds me of the passage that the Lord used in Matthew chapter 23 and 25 through 28 to describe the Pharisees, that they cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside it's full of rottenness and dead men's bones. Or they're like those whitewashed sepulchers, or the, the cups that are clean on the outside but dirty on the inside, the whitewashed sepulchers. They're very careful to put out that outward form of godliness but they really don't allow godliness to transform how they live their lives day to day. We think about one that's a four-hour Christian. We're talking about one that does not allow that Christianity to affect their daily lives. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, the Apostle Paul said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, his life was about service to God. The Apostle Paul pointed out, whether I live, whether I die, my goal and my aim in life is to serve the Lord, is to live for Him. The individual we're talking about tonight, that's a four-hour Christian, is one that is present. they one that may not hold any doctrinal error. They may believe the truth. They may stand firm for things like we can't have instrumental music in worship. They, we, we have to do things exactly like God has prescribed and they're right in that. But when you look closer upon their Christianity, it doesn't really affect how they live day to day. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians the 12th chapter, and in verse 20 and 21, Paul is writing to the brethren at Corinth. They were still members at Corinth. There's nothing said in the book of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians that indicates any had quit attending. And yet what he said in chapter 12 and 20 and 21 is there are things like contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath and selfish ambitions and backbitings and whisperings and conceits and tumults. He talks about uncleanliness and fornication and lewdness that they practiced. Here are individuals that were still members of the church at Corinth, and yet you look at the lives they were living, and serving the Lord didn't affect the things they did day in and day out. So we're talking about a four-hour Christian. We're talking about somebody that attends, but they don't allow that Christianity really to transform their lives. We know, what could it be that I'm really nothing more than just that four-hour Christian that seeks to put up the form of godliness and sort of cleanse the outer, outer cut Could it be that that's what I am, and yet I have fooled myself into thinking I am more than that? 
Well, what are the identifying marks of an individual that we would characterize as one that's really simply a four-hour Christian? What are signs or symptoms that that's what we are becoming? Let me say one of the signs I think of a four-hour Christian is a four-hour Christian is one that spends little time in studying of the Scripture and prayer outside the assembly. They're there when the doors are open. They, they sit in Bible class. Uh, they may answer a few questions, but if you look close at your life, outside the assembly, there's just little time spent in the study of the Word of God and in prayer. I'm confident that one of the things that has happened to many in the uh, people of God is they've allowed this world to choke out spiritual things. I've said many times, I don't think that Many times the conversation has taken place in Christian homes where a mother and a father and children sit down together and they say, listen, we've got so much on our plate. We've got so much to do and we've got this activity and we've got this other activity we've got to be involved in. We've got five ball games to go to. We're going to have to give up something. And somebody says, well, i tell you what let's do. Let's quit studying the Bible. Let's quit praying as we should. Let's eliminate that. That's a conversation that doesn't often happen, if ever. But what happens is we allow the world to sort of crowd in and choke out the Word, and it becomes unfruitful. You know, it is impossible to be a strong Christian who does not study and who does not pray. I, I, I believe very firmly in the, the value of our assembling together. I believe very firmly in the value of gospel teaching and gospel preaching. If I didn't, I'd choose to do something else. But I want to tell you, we need far more than what we can get in the four hours that we gather together each and every week. Peter describes the attitude of the child of God as one like a newborn infant that longs for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. When I first started preaching, I'd use that passage and use it to describe the attitude of a new convert. We need to be like babes in Christ. The more I've studied that passage, the more I believe he's not describing the attitude of the new convert. He's describing the attitude that every child of God needs to have toward the Word. Just like that newborn babe desires milk to be fed, Christians need to have that kind of consuming desire for the Word of God to feed upon it in order to grow up thereby unto salvation. But I tell you, the four-hour Christian spends little time in the study of the Word of God. There's not a discussion of the Word of God with their children or with their spouse. And they don't spend a lot of time in prayer. They don't pray without ceasing, as is commanded in passages like uh, Philippian, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse 17. Or they don't study daily, as Acts 17, 11 says. Could that describe you? That you're really, when you think about the time you spend thinking about the Word of God, that it doesn't extend beyond the time that you gather Together. One sign that I'm becoming a four-hour Christian is there's little time spent in prayer and little time spent in the study of the Word of God. Then another sign is their time is dominated by worldly things instead of the spiritual. There are too many irons in the fire. Then in other words, our schedules are too full that there's little time for spiritual things. Our world, our, our schedules are packed full of things that pertain to this world. Things that are not wrong in of themselves. Things that are not sinful in of themselves, but we've allowed them to dominate our time to the point we have no time to visit the sick. We have no time to show hospitality. And again, we have little time 
for spiritual conversation or the study of the Word of God. Schedules being too full or allowing things to choke out the Word has always been a problem for the people of God, always been a danger. We're studying right now through the book of Deuteronomy on Sunday morning, and I'm amazed at the practicality of the warnings that Moses gave to the people of Israel, things that we need to hear today, but... Deuteronomy chapter 6 and in verse 12, Moses told the people of God, Beware lest you forget the Lord that brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. In a context where he's saying, don't, don't get so busy when you get into the land reaping and sowing and enjoy everything that God has given to you that you forget where those blessings came from and you forget God. Not in the sense I believe that they would forget that there is a God nor that they didn't pay lip service to God, but in the sense that they were not going to allow God to affect their daily lives. They sort of forgot about Him as the guiding force in their lives. The book of 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 10, we read about Demas that had forsaken Paul, having loved this present world. The cares of this world choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. A sign of one that's a four-hour Christian is you look at their time and it's dominated by the worldly and the mundane with little spiritual activity. Do another sign of a four-hour Christian is they may more closely identify with the world than with those that practice Christianity. When you look at their lives, they may identify more closely with the world than with those who practice their Christianity. What do I mean by that? I mean, when you look, for example, at how they dress, their priorities, they make them blend into the world. And they have far more in common with the world than they do the people of God. Adulterers and adulteresses, as James would say in James 4 and verse 4, Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When you look at their lives, you don't really see a marked difference in their lives and the lives of the people of the world. Not in their conversation, not in their dress, not in the kind of things that are important. They just sort of blend into this world. That's the four-hour Christian. They haven't come out yet and been separate as God commanded them in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17. In fact, if you just observe their lives... Others may not even identify them as being Christians. Remember several years ago, there was a gospel meeting down below Birmingham, Alabama. And I was sitting around a dinner table talking to a couple that was there and they had their young, uh, their son and, and his newlywed wife there. And they talked about where they had lived previous to moving there. And they said, we graduated and they gave the town where they had graduated from. It just happened that I had preached in the past in that town. And so I said, well, I bet you know. And so I threw two names of some members of the church there that would have graduated with them. And then their draws just dropped. They said, you mean they were Christians? You mean they went to church? And then, of course, I was sort of embarrassed at that point in time because what they were saying, in what we saw and in what we observed in terms of their lives, in terms of their activity, in terms of, of, of their dress, we never would have guessed they were Christians. They had far more in common with the world than they did with the people of God. You know, one that's a four-hour Christian might even be one that while they attend, they have come to view worship as a burden, not a privilege. 
In other words, when we become a four-hour Christian, with a little interest in spiritual things beyond our time together, we may come, but we come to view worship as a burden and not a privilege. We begin to ask questions like, do we have to go every night? When we lay a gospel meeting coming, we may even look with dread that, oh no, they're going to expect us to be there every night this week. It may be much like the attitude of the people in Malachi's day, in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 13, who sneered and said, oh, what a weariness. They were still going through some of the outward signs and the outward motions. In fact, what the Lord tells them in Malachi chapter 1 is with your attitude and giving me the leftovers and the attitude of it being a weariness, I wish somebody would bolt and lock the door to the temple. I don't want that kind of service. I don't believe God wants that kind of service today either. But they may even come to view worship as a burden, not a privilege. In fact... Their attitude is far different than the attitude of David in Psalm 122 and in verse 1, who said with regard to going to the house of the Lord that I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. My understanding of the Hebrew language, that literally means it brightened my day. It brightened me, it cheered me to think about going and worshiping the Lord. What's your attitude toward worship? I believe when our, when our attitude toward the Lord and toward spiritual things is what it needs to be, we don't ask questions like, do I have to go? We want to go. We want to be there to study the Word of God, to grow spiritually, to encourage others, and to worship the God who made the sacrifices necessary for our salvation. And so sometimes we have those that are just simply for our Christians. They're there every service. But when you look closely at the signs, you see one who's not allowed that to really transform their lives and they really have more in common with the world than they do with the people of God. Well, here's my question. The remainder of the time, is it possible really to be a four-hour Christian? And what I mean by that, if we think about Christian being one that follows the Lord, is it really possible... To be a servant of God, a child of God, who does not give more than just simply that in service to God. I want us to understand that being a Christian means being a disciple. If we were going to say, what's a Christian? The word Christian itself does not appear that frequently in the New Testament. Three times I believe it appears. The word disciple occurs far more frequently And Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 tells us that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. I believe, by the way, that when they were called that, that was a divinely chosen name for them. I think the context of of, uh, Acts chapter 11, 26 bears that out. I connect that back to the prophecy made in the book of Isaiah about the name that was given. My understanding is every time in the New Testament that that phrase called occurs, it is a divine utterance that is made. It's a divinely chosen name. And that name Christian is chosen to choose to describe those that are disciples of the Lord. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, if I'm going to be a disciple of the Lord, then that means a disciple seeks to be like his master. He seeks to be like his master. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 25, the Bible tells us it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? 
In other words, a disciple is one that seeks to be like his master. Our master, of course, being the Lord. We're seeking to imitate and to uh, emulate him. In Ephesians 4 and verse 24, the Bible says, Put on the new man, which is created, the English Standard Version says, After the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What is one that is put on the new man? He's one that has transformed himself and he's putting on the image of God in true holiness and righteousness. In other words, God is the standard that we are seeking to be transformed into. God's righteousness is not just simply an outward righteousness. God is righteous and holy in all that he does, in all that he says. And when we seek to put on the new man, we're seeking to transform ourselves to reflect the likeness of God. Can we do that and simply be interested in spiritual things for just a few hours every week? Or coming in and half dozing while we study together and then forgetting about spiritual things on Monday through Tuesday and then maybe pick it up a little bit on Wednesday night and then we'll forget about it again until the following Sunday? A disciple is one that seeks to be like his master. A disciple is one that takes up his cross daily. In Luke chapter 9 and in verse 23, Jesus said, If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, do you want to serve me? Jesus said, think about what it's going to require. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to put your will on the back burner. As Paul would say in the book of Galatians, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And you've got to take up your cross daily. You've got to serve the Lord each and every day through difficulties and trials. Whatever is required, you've got to do that. That's what a disciple does. Luke chapter Luke chapter 9 and in verse 23. And a disciple is one that has to put the Lord before all other, before all other relationships. You know, the Lord's not going to take second place. Remember years years ago, the very first place I, I I was preaching, we had gone to a gospel meeting one night. Or it was a gospel meeting there where I was preaching, and I I got there and somebody wasn't present in the gospel meeting. I knew where they were. I called them just to make them tell me where they were. And I remember because me and Dawn were weren't even married at that point in time, and I picked up the phone and I called and I said, "Where where were you?" And they they'd gone to a ball. Amen. But I remember the woman telling me on the other side of the phone when I said, you know, you need to put the Lord first. You need to set an example for your children. And I remember her telling me on that occasion, you don't understand. My children are number one with me and I'll put them before everything else. And if that's what they want, that's what I'm going to do. I told her then, it didn't come probably all that well from a 20-year-old with no kids. But I told her, I said... Just wait a few years down the road. You're going to regret this decision. You will regret the decision that you've made. I wished I could stand here and say I was wrong, but I'm not. You saw the, what happened in that family. But you know what happened? She got her priorities out of order. Because what the Lord said in Luke chapter 14, if you want to be my disciple, you know, if you want to be, if you want to follow after me, if you want to serve me, listen to what he says. If any man comes after me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, listen, he cannot be my disciple. 
You want to be a Christian? You want to be a disciple of the Lord? What he's saying is you've got to put me before every other relationship, family, even your own life. I've got to be number one. And if you're not willing to do that, then you can't be my disciple. See, being a disciple is what a Christian is, but a disciple doesn't put the Lord on the back burner and he gets allocates to him a few hours every week when we gather together, but rather the Lord is number one in his life above everything else. See, not only do I learn that it's really not possible to be a Christian with simply devoting four hours a week to the Lord and forgetting about Him the rest of the time, because that's not what a disciple is. I also learn when I go through the Scriptures that being a Christian affects every area of our life. See, being a Christian is our calling. Ephesians 4 and verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. It really marks the beginning of the second half of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is easily divided into two sections. You've got chapters 1 through 3 that talks about blessings in Christ, and chapters 4 to 6 that talks about our behavior in Christ. Or you might outline, I believe it was Weldon Warnick that outlined it this way, that I've made you Christians Chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 6, now act like 1. What he's saying is you're a child of God, you enjoy all these spiritual blessings. There's a certain way God expects us to live. But I want you to notice he calls being a Christian our calling. The old King James Version says, walk worthy, he said, of the vocation wherein you were called. God Brother Caldwell said in coming upon that passage that the vocation or calling of the Christian is the job of being a Christian. It is the spiritual heavenly calling of God to salvation. It includes the benefits and responsibilities pertaining to our salvation. It involves what we do in our lives and what we teach others to do. This vocation is the full-time occupation of the child of God. It is our work in life. It is what we do. In other words, being a Christian is our vocation. Someone said, and I don't know who it was, that being a Christian is not an avocation, it is not a vacation, it is our vocation. It is our calling, it is our job. It's what we do. And when you go through those latter chapters of the book of Ephesians, what you learn is that being a Christian affects every area of our lives. I can't sing the song, but I remember when our kids were little and we had... Bought where I was some new class material and had some new songs for the kids to sing in Bible class. There was a song that they sang about what they wanted to do when they grow up. You know, I'll be a fireman when I grow up or I'll be a policeman when I grow up. And I can't remember all the words to it or how it went, but the basic point of that song is that's my, I'll be a fireman when I grow up, but I'll be a Christian fireman when I grow up. In other words, the point was, what well, matter what I do, no matter what I decide to be when I grow up, I'm going to be a Christian in that area. I'm going to live like God wants me to live. When we think about our calling, our calling means more than just simply assembling together. It means possessing the right attitude. Ephesians 4 and verse 2. You think about what is required of us as children of God. Ephesians 4 and verse 2, he said, lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering and bearing with one another in love. 
What we do is we come collectively together is important, but there's more to being a Christian than that. It's about possessing the right attitude toward others. It's about being committed to the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Chapter 4, verses 4 through verse 6. It involves providing my part for the edifying of the body of Christ. When he talks about in, the, in Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 7 and going through verse 16, about what God has provided the body, and he talks about in verse 16 how the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In other words, when I'm living according to my calling, I'm doing what I can to build others up and to encourage them and to make them stronger. It's more than about getting my name on a registry. It's more about than simply attending every service. It's about contributing to the growth of the body. It's about being different than the world. In Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17, I have this section outlined in my Bible in this particular chapter, don't be like the world. Don't, don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. And so I assemble together, but I tell you what I also don't do during the week. I don't talk about things that are lewd and ugly. I don't give myself to anger. I don't let corrupt words proceed out of my mouth in verse 29. I put away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. I'm kind to my brethren. I'm tender hearted. I'm forgiving. As he comes into chapter 5, we are pure, we walk, and we produce the fruit of the light or the fruit of the Spirit. As he said in verse 9, all goodness and righteousness and truth. I'm seeking in that, by the way, in chapter 5, to imitate God in those things. I'm imitators of God as dear children. Well, if I imitate God, what does that mean? It means I walk in love, I walk in light, I walk in wisdom in that chapter. When he comes to the end of that chapter, he talks about the relationship of Christ in the church, using the marriage relationship to illustrate it. But then he says, nevertheless, let every man love his own wife and let the wife see that she reverences her husband. And then he launches from there into a discussion about the family relationship and children and parents. What's he saying? He's saying walking worthy means being the kind of husband you need to be. Means being the kind of wife you need to be. Means being the kind of parent, the kind of child that you need to be. It means being a good employee or a good employer and working hard in all that we do in verses 5 through verse 9. When he talks about the servant-master relationship. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is doing? As he's writing to these Christians at Ephesus and he's telling them, you've got to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. What he's saying is being a Christian is your job. It affects and it permeates every area of your life and how you live and what you do in all of these areas. Not only did Paul point that out, let me just say Peter pointed that out as well in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. When writing to the Christians that he was addressing in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter said, as the Lord is holy, we also must be holy in all of our conduct. What does that mean, in all of our conduct? What he's saying is it's not simply a a part-time job that we have. It's not simply something we do for a few hours, but rather in all of our conduct we seek to be holy. Take you very quickly through this book as he talks about that area of holiness it means holy my relationship to the world 
What does that mean? It means I live as a stranger and a pilgrim. It means that I don't allow the world to determine how I'm going to live. That should be chapter 2 and verses 9 through verse 12, not chapter 1. But I'm living as a stranger and as a pilgrim. You know, one thing I think that sometimes as Christian parents we need to do, we'll talk a little bit of this on modesty on, on Wednesday night. I see far too many Christians that are worried about their children fitting into this world when what we need to be teaching our children is we don't fit into this world. We're transformed. We're we're strangers and we're pilgrims here. The world thinks we're strange. We don't fit in. Our standards are different. Our manner of life is different. I don't want my children to fit into this world. Because if they fit into this world, then they're not have been transformed by the renewing of their mind, as Paul commanded in Romans chapter 12. In my relationship to the world, it means I am different. It means, however, I treat others with the right attitude and I have my conduct honorable at work because I want people to see Christ living in me. That they might ask concerning the hope that I have and that I might have the opportunity to teach them. It means being holy in my relationship to the government. It means I'm respectful to the government. I don't always agree with them. I've seen some attitudes sometimes when, when things aren't going our way that I'm not sure fit with the, the attitude that a Christian needs to have. We can disagree. We, we, can, we can express those disagreements, but we don't have the right to be disrespectful to those in places of leadership. And sometimes our language reflects sometimes that. Sometimes I think I've probably done that from time to time. You know what the Lord said? He said, we submit to every ordinance of man. We honor all people. We love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the king. It's not always easy. I think I always try to remember. You know who the king was when they wrote that in 1 Peter chapter 2? That's Nero. And I think, you know what, if they could give him the honor and respect as king, surely I can give the honor and respect due to leaders with whom I disagree. But my attitude toward government is influenced by my attitude, by, by my Christianity, by my attitude toward the Lord. I'm holy view of marriage in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. As wives, they submit. As husbands, we give honor to the wives as unto the weaker vessel. It means I'm holy in how I deal with suffering when it comes up and when it arises. In fact, over and over again throughout the Bible, we see this attitude that is, that is shown that being a Christian affects every day and every area of our lives. It's not something that we can simply pick up as we go out the door and take it with us on Sunday morning and then Sunday night we can pack it away and then Wednesday night we pick it up again. No, it affects us every single day of our lives. Does that describe you? Do you can you really be described? Can I be described as one that is, is following the instructions, who's walking worthy of the calling with which he was called, that's holy in all of my conduct? Or am I more like that four-hour Christian? that we described a little bit earlier. Holy in my suffering. Holy in my view of marriage. Holy in living for the end of all things. In 1 Peter chapter 4, in verses 1 through verse 11, as he talks about being hospitable and being serious and watchful in our prayers and then humbly filling our place in chapter 5, that should say. Does that describe me? In fact, when you come into the Sermon on the Mount and you look at the description of the righteousness required in the kingdom of God, 
I'm impressed with how the fact that that righteousness that exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is a righteousness that is truly inward. It's, it, it's not mere outward facade. It's not a mere form of godliness. But one of the things that I think the Lord emphasizes is this is a righteousness that is indeed a deep, a heartfelt, transformative righteousness. In fact, we'll not take the time to go through all of these verses tonight, but look, it's a righteousness of heart, not just abstaining from the overt acts of sin. I'm no longer concerned just about as a child of God, I don't want to do anything that somebody else sees. I don't want to commit adultery. Somebody might see that. I don't want to, I don't want to blow up in anger because I'm, somebody might see that. Not just that, I, you know, I, I'm concerned about uh, in, engaging and in, in retaliating. I don't want somebody to see that. No, what I'm concerned about is my heart being what it needs to be in the eyes of God. So not only am I not going to abstain from sexual, uh, not only am I going to abstain from sexual morality, but I'm going to transform my heart so that it doesn't lust, that it doesn't harbor ill will, that it doesn't harbor hatred toward others. It has to do with our treatment of everyone. Being a Christian is who we are. It's about our daily lives. It's about others seeing Christ living in us. In fact, when we think about that, after we get out of the Sermon on the Mount, in the very beginning of that sermon, in Matthew chapter 5 and 13 to 16, Jesus points out that being a Christian is something people ought to see in us. Part of our light shining. And that's the question that sometimes I think we have to ask. Sort of like that couple I asked, I told earlier, and I said, well, then you know so-and-so. Are they Christians? Do people see Christ living in you? Do they see your light shining? Remember, we don't serve the Lord. We, we, don't, we don't do righteous acts to be seen by others. But when we are living righteous, others will see that. We serve as the light to the world and the salt of the earth. Matthew chapter 5 and 13 through verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Peter said in 1 Peter 2 and 11 and 12, Beloved, I beg you as pilgrims and sojourners abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by the good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Others should see Christ living in us each and every day. Sometimes I wonder, we talk about personal evangelism. Why, why are we not converting others? Why, why is the church not growing? There may be a lot of answers to that question. Sometimes the answer is we're not putting forth the effort we need to in sharing the gospel with others. Maybe part of the answer might be that people are more distracted with other things than they've ever been before. But sometimes I wonder if one of the answers is sometimes the world just sees a little difference in how we live and how they live. That is, in people that they come in contact with and the people that they work with, there's really little difference in the life of some children of God and some people of the world. People should see Christ living in us. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verses 6 through verse 9, we learn this principle. Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verses 6 through verse 9, where the prophet Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. And he's telling them of their responsibility to teach their children. And he told them in the verse just prior to that that 
They needed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. You give God your all. But then he said this, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit down, and when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What was Moses really telling the people there? I tell you, when he talked about putting it between their eyes, he's not really talking about literally like the phylacteries that the Jews like to like to uh, wear in order to put a show before others. He's not talking about literally writing signs on your hands or the scripture on your hands. What he's talking about is the word of God is something that is with us everywhere we go. In other words, it's on the doorpost of the house and on the gates. What does that mean? The Word of God is not something I pick up and I take to church on Sunday morning and I use, and then when I get home, I lay it down before I go home, go into my house and then I act completely different than what God had had me to act in my relationship to my family, my relationship to my children. I don't leave it there when I go to work. I don't leave it there when I go to recreation and I engage in, in other activities. But it's on the doorpost of the house on the gate. What does that mean? It's with me when I'm home and when I leave, I see it and I'm taking the word of God with me everywhere I go. See, being a Christian, being a servant of God is our vocation. It's who we are. It's what we are. And sometimes we need to take a good look at ourselves and see, like the elder asked me, do we have too many people that are simply four-hour Christians? That is, people who are concerned about being present, but... Beyond that, they're not really living the life that God wants us to live as His children. What about you? Are you a four-hour Christian? I hope you see the importance of being present each and every service. God demands it. I think it's sinful if we're not. But there's more to serving the Lord than just being present. It's about living Christianity day in and day out. The study of the Scriptures and the setting of the proper example. And if we're doing that, then we'll be better in trying to teach others the gospel because they'll truly see Christ living in us and will truly be a light to those that are around about us. It could be that there's somebody present here this evening that has never obeyed the gospel. You're not a child of God. You've not yet begun that journey. But you can begin it here tonight. It's just the beginning when you make that decision to enter into the waters of baptism, having heard the word of God, believed repented, confessed your faith in Jesus Christ, when you're buried in those waters of baptism, that's the beginning of a new vocation. It's the beginning of a new calling that is going to be spent in service to God. Would you not begin that journey tonight if you've not yet done so? Or maybe there's somebody here that has obeyed the gospel, but maybe your Christianity was just simply your being present. Maybe others around hasn't really seen Christ living in you. Maybe that you've done things privately that you shouldn't have done. You can take those to the Lord and ask for His forgiveness. Or it may be that there's something that needs to be publicly acknowledged. And if that's your condition, someone will assist you tonight in making acknowledgement of that and praying to God that you might be forgiven. No matter what your need is this evening, if you're subject to God's invitation anyway, please respond right now so that we stand and we sing.